0: Gospel of John chapter twelve and verse twenty. Gospel of John chapter twelve and verse twenty. I want to remind us, as I do every week, that we're about to read God's word, his word of of power and authority and grace and love. His word that is a A window into his character, into his very reality that he exposes into our broken world. He opens the window shade, as it were, lets the light of his revelation shine into our hearts every time we open God's word. I would encourage us to read it with anticipation, with a sense of humility and faith. You never know what God will do. When you open up His Word. So, let's begin reading in John chapter 12 and verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. I want to tell you a, a story. It's not a true story, it's just a, an, an imaginary illustration, but I think it'll, it'll help to lead us into this passage of it. Imagine a, a young child, perhaps five years old, a little girl, who has a very precious apple seed. And as children are prone to do, she had decided this was a treasure. She had kept it in her special treasure box. And she hadn't even named it. She'd called it her very own seedling, and she she loved it very much. Well, one day her father came to her with with an opportunity. He said, you know, if you plant that seed in the ground, one day we'll have an apple tree, and you can enjoy the apples year after year. No, she said. If I plant the seed, I'll never see it again." He was a truthful father, so he said, yes, that's true, sort of. But if you plant the seed, you'll see it again in the tree that will come from that seed. No, she said, I love this seed. I want to keep this seed. And day after day, she refused. Till finally one day she decided to trust her father, decided that he knew more than she did, so she handed it to him reluctantly, tearfully, weeping, clinging to him. The kind father that he was, he took her in his arms and went out with her into the field. He sowed the seed in the ground, watered it, fertilized it, prepared it for the coming rain and sun. And the next spring, after years of missing her seed, she noticed, she noticed the small tree begin to come up. And year after year, her father tended it, and it grew stronger and stronger. And one day, when she was grown, there it was, a huge apple tree. And she took her little girl out to the field and plucked one of the apples and opened it, and there was a seed inside. And she started the lesson all over again. Jesus is a master at using everyday illustrations to teach profound spiritual truths. And he's teaching us something in this passage about the very very nature of life and fruit and harvest that has application for how we live our Christian lives, indeed, the very nature of the salvation that has saved us that should shape how we serve Him. The central point of this passage is that we must give our lives to the One who gave His life to save us. We must give our lives to the One who gave His life to save us. The Father comes to us as His little children, and He brings us a message through the lips of Jesus, and He says, you must plant the seed that is your life in the ground. And only when you do that will you see a harvest. And more importantly than our planting is the planting that Jesus did for us. There was a great seed to be sown and a great harvest to be reaped. So we walk through this passage so that we can, we can feel the reality, just like that little girl did, the reality of the cost of real discipleship, and more importantly, the cost of our salvation, but also the hope and the joy of the harvest. Let's walk through the story, and then we'll try to make some application. You want to notice at the very beginning of this passage a somewhat unexpected request. The passage begins in verse 20 with those going up to the feast. This is the Feast of Passover. And there were some Greeks, these are non-Jews, who apparently are God-fearing enough and want to come to Jerusalem to participate in the great Feast of Passover. And apparently the reputation of Jesus... The one who had raised Lazarus from the dead had begun to spread. So these non-Jews have heard about him, and they come to Philip, who would have been at least closer to their area, and they ask him, we want to see Jesus. This is very important for John because for John, seeing Jesus is not just a physical request. It's something that God has to create spiritually in the heart of a person. As Jesus would say to Nicodemus, you cannot have eternal life unless you are born again. You cannot see unless you are given new eyes. So, this request has spiritual undertones, and it's important because the Jewish expectation at the time was that the Messiah was coming to rescue the people from their political oppression by the Roman Empire. The expectation was of a nationalistic Messiah who was primarily focused on Jewish earthly salvation. They wanted someone who would rescue them from physical harm, and they were not particularly concerned about the salvation of the world. So, the question of these Greeks coming to see Jesus introduces a very important question. Is Jesus merely a Jewish Messiah, or does He have something for the world? Jesus is so attuned to this question that He chooses this moment This moment with these Greeks asking to see Jesus as the moment, the trigger to declare that His hour has come to complete His mission, to demonstrate His glory. Notice Jesus' response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus decides this question from the Greeks is an appropriate prompt to declare that His hour of glory has arrived. Now, since we know the the rest of this story, this statement is remarkable for a couple of reasons. Jesus considers His death the occasion of His glory. The Gospel of John is divided by commentators into two major sections, the book of signs and the book of glory, because Jesus talks about His hour, the hour of glory, the hour when His glory is displayed. And John pictures Jesus' glory not merely as His resurrection, but as His crucifixion and resurrection considered together as one eschatological, one saving event. Now, Jesus is prompted by these Greeks, and they're seeking of Him to declare, this is the moment when my global glory, my glory as the Savior of people from every tribe and language and people and nation, this is the moment when my glory is going to be revealed. This is the time. Jesus considers his death the occasion of his glory, and Jesus considers the glory of his death to include salvation of all kinds of people. John seems to be doing that intentionally, where he he uses this story to, to point out that no, Jesus was not merely going to glorify himself for the sake of the Jewish nation, but for the sake of people from all over the world, including Greeks and Persians and Americans And Africans and South Americans and Chinese and Japanese people from all over the world will be given sight to see the glory of Jesus Christ. This is his response. Verse 32 makes it clear that when he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. You look down the passage, you can see his definition of this global salvation is going to come through the kind of death he's going to die. Do you see that in verse 32? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. So, for Jesus, this is the moment when His global and saving sacrifice is about to be unleashed on the world. It's important that we view Jesus' glory here, not just glory that would come after His death, but glory that would come through His death, glory that would be displayed through His cross, the glory that is ironic glory because it's shown in His weakness. In embracing his call to death, Jesus was embracing an hour of glory in which God's global salvation would be revealed and accomplished. And in his death, Jesus saw his glory as the Savior of a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And because this would surely be surprising... Surely be surprising, Jesus introduces this concept of glory through sacrifice by way of a paradox. Look down at your Bibles. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, It bears much fruit." Jesus is introducing the way in which He is going to be glorified, and it is an unusual way. It is a surprising way. He's not going to be glorified by exaltation before the people and riding into Jerusalem on a a white horse and taken to the throne and deposing Pilate and Herod and conquering his enemies. That's not going to be the way He's going to be glorified. Instead, He's going to be glorified the way a seed is glorified when it goes into the ground and dies, and yet through that death produces an abundant harvest." He's revealing the nature of His glory. His glory is not earthly kinds of glory. It's not accomplished by physical strength or political might or popularity. No, it's accomplished by death. Jesus compares Himself to a seed going into the ground, and yet that seed is the forebear of a mighty harvest. So that one could truly say the glory of a seed is in its death and the glory of the Savior is in His sacrifice. He reveals this paradox, and lest His listeners miss the point, He makes the point directly. (laughs) He says it directly to them, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is making a point. Listen, the person who seeks to save his life is going to lose it anyway. The reality is people and seeds will eventually decay and die. That's going to happen. That is inevitable. Whether you love your life or hate your life, eventually your life will end. That's the point Jesus is making. You don't have the option of holding on to your life forever. Your life has an expiration date, Jesus would say. Every life on this earth has an expiration date. It will eventually succumb to the curse and die. So, he that loves his life truly will still lose it. And yet, Jesus said, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, Jesus is obviously using a kind of hyperbole. He's not talking about hating our lives in every respect, as if we literally can feel no pleasure in any aspect of life. The person who feels no pleasure in something is not sacrificing to give it up. Imagine if you have a particular chore to do that you absolutely hate and your mother comes to you and says, it's, it's okay. I'll take the chore from you. And you say, well, that's good. I was feeling like sacrificing today. I feel like sacrificing. I'll give you my chore, mother, because I love you and because I want to sacrifice for you. You take my chore. Now, that's not a sacrifice. That's a good thing. Nobody wants to do a chore. What you're sacrificing is something that you love. So, Jesus is not saying the person who hates his life could care less about sacrifice, could care less about pain, doesn't want to live any longer. No, He's he's referring to a person who actually does enjoy his life, who loves life and doesn't enjoy pain, but that person chooses to treat his life as if he hated it in comparison to the harvest. That's the point Jesus is making. If you could use a somewhat silly seed example, it's not as though the seed wants to die, but the seed is willing to die in order to produce the harvest. Compared to love for the harvest, the seed hates its own life. Compared to love for the product of the harvest, the seed hates its own preservation. Jesus is saying that there is a kind of person who knowingly chooses to sacrifice his life, to treat it as if he hated it in service of the harvest, just like that seed. And surprisingly, that person will find that they have a life that cannot be taken from them in the end. Look down at your Bibles and try to get this paradox. This is, this is the center of what Jesus is saying. Listen, if you love your life, if you try to hold on to it, you're like a seed and you will eventually die anyway. But if you hate your life, if you are willing for your life to go into the ground in destruction and self-sacrifice, then you will find that you produce a harvest that can be kept for eternity. Now, most importantly, before Jesus is talking about any of us, He is talking about Himself. Jesus is the one who would not hold to his life but laid it down. We want to notice this, that Jesus says the hour has now come for who? For the Son of Man to be glorified. How is that defined? I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. In other words, he would not receive the glory of a global harvest unless he was willing to die. And he knew this was true. Whoever loves his life will eventually lose it... But whoever hates his life, treats it with a relative hatred, will keep it for eternal life." Now, we we have to see this as applying first and foremost to Jesus Christ, the one person who didn't actually have to die. The one person who didn't actually have to die was Jesus. And the one person who chose to treat his life, which actually was eternal, with a kind of hatred, was Jesus. Jesus, the author of life, the one holy and perfect man in all of history, laid down his life in death. He was the seed that went into the ground and was destroyed. He submitted to the curse that we deserved. He experienced the punishment of death that should be ours because of our sin. He sowed the seed of His life into our grave so that He could bear the harvest of our salvation. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat… Who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. Unless this grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it will indeed remain alone because no other person can have eternal life except this grain of wheat die in their place. There will be no harvest, there will be no salvation, there will be no Greeks who can come to know God, there will be no future heaven, there will be no hope unless this grain of wheat goes into the earth and dies in place of His people. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We have a glimpse here into this beautiful illustration that that depicts what the writer of Hebrews calls the joy that was set before Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. Jesus Jesus is this master illustrator, and He says, you know know what I'm like? I'm like a grain of wheat, and I'm going to be destroyed, just like that seed. I'm going to be crushed, disintegrated, obliterated. I'm going to go into the ground and die, but I don't want to remain alone I want there to be a harvest, and for the joy of that harvest, the joy of producing the harvest the Father has called me to produce, I will go into the ground and die, and then I will bear much fruit." Now. Jesus will call us to sacrifice as well as the passage continues, but we must never equate our sacrifice with that of Jesus Christ. We must never add ours to His. We don't save ourselves by dying, we are saved by His death. We don't save ourselves by dying for Jesus, Jesus saves us by dying in our place. That's the first and most important truth of this passage. The Greeks come. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus says, look, if you want to truly see me, what you really need to see is someone who's going to die on behalf of sinners. If you really want to see me, see me in what I I really came to do, you need to see me on that cross. If you really want to see me, Greeks and Arabians and Jews and Palestinians, and Chinese, and Japanese, and Africans, and South Americans, if you really want to see me, you need to see me dying. Because when you see me dying, you will see the only sight that can produce the harvest of this world. There is only one person who can draw all people to himself, and that is Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're here this morning and you want to go to heaven... There is only one person who can get you there, and it is not you. Jesus Christ offered his life to pay for the sins of everyone who would believe in him. And if you believe in Jesus, his death counts as the payment for your sins, it counts for it completely. So that God no longer need punish you for your sins, but instead He can welcome you into heaven, and you will become a kind of harvest of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll be like that seed planted into the ground, and you'll be like that fruit that comes out of His sacrifice. Jesus Christ offers His death in place of every sinner who comes to Him in repentance and faith. So He offers it to you this morning. And this world is filled with death Death is inevitable. Even if you love your life you will eventually lose it. You will eventually die anyway and you will find if you clung to your life and you clung to your own your own goods and your own self-confidence you will find that death will come to you after all. But if you let go of your life and come to Jesus and let his death be your sacrifice in your place then you will have eternal life that you will never lose. Now, if if one danger in countless religions is to boast in our sacrifice, to trust it to get us to heaven, the other danger is to assume that disciples of Jesus have no calling of their own to servanthood. It's possible someone could assume that this paradox only applies to Jesus, but no, Jesus makes that clear in verse 20. He provides a definition of our discipleship. Notice in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. As Charles Spurgeon would say, we are not saved by service, but we are saved to service. We are not saved by service, but we are saved to service. Now, to be where Jesus is and follow him where he leads certainly includes our final hope of heaven. certainly includes that. But in the immediate context of these verses, Jesus is pointing resolutely to the cross. To be with Jesus and to follow his path in this life is to take up our crosses in willing obedience to him. To serve Jesus is to follow him into self-sacrifice as the necessary road to glory. This is the point Jesus made to his disciples when they were arguing about who was the greatest and can we sit on your right hand and your left. And he said, can you take the cup that I am to drink? He was making this point. He's like, listen, if, if you want to share my glory, you will have to share my suffering. If you want to sit with me in my heavenly throne room, you will have to go with me to your own sacrificial cross. Now, our crosses don't save us, but we do walk in the path that Jesus led us. In other words, you cannot be a Christian unless you are willing to hate your life in comparison to loving Jesus and His harvest understand the severity of, of what Jesus is saying? Now, He's saying this as the one who literally is bearing the ultimate cross. He's not calling us from some distant throne, hey, go sacrifice and then come back and talk to me later. No, He's the one literally going and bearing the wrath of God in our place. But then He's saying, listen, if you, if you want to identify with me, you too will have to take up your cross and follow me. There is no glory without the cross. There is no seeing of Jesus without embracing the sacrifice that is necessary for those who identify with Him. So, Christians throughout the centuries have found that knowing Jesus more requires counting all as loss. Loving Jesus more requires loving Him more then we love our life. Do we hate our life in every respect? No, of course not. That wouldn't be a sacrifice. We actually love our life. We enjoy the good things of our life, things that God has given us as gifts and and blessings and pleasures. We, We love those things, but we bring them to the one who died to save us, and we willingly say, Lord, these are yours, and if they can be useful to you in some other way than me enjoying them, I gladly give them to you. My my life is yours. I take up the cross that you bring to me. Whatever losses you call for me to lose, I gladly give to you because I want to be where you are. I want to follow you on the road of self sacrifice because wherever you are, that's where I want to be, as the writers of Hebrews would say. Let us go to him outside the camp. Listen, it's important that we confront any definition of the Christian life, that it is basically you come to Jesus and ask for him to save you from hell, and then you try to make life as absolutely comfortable as you possibly can until you go to heaven. It's possible that we think of the Christian life that way. You come to Jesus and you say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and please save me, and I don't want to go to hell, and please take me to heaven. And, and, And by the way, I would like the rest of my life to be absolutely enjoyable in every regard, and I'll try not to sin too often, and then I'll see you in heaven. It's possible that we could think of the Christian life that way, but that is not the biblical Christian life. The biblical Christian life is, if anyone would serve me, he must come after me, that where I am, he may be also. This is what Jesus said again and again. He said to Paul, he said when Ananias was going to go with Paul, the apostle Paul, he said, I I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. He said to Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. One day... You will be led by the hand where you do not want to go. And John comments in just a few chapters, this was to show Peter what kind of death he was going to die. Throughout the centuries, the godly church, the mature church, is the church that gladly and willingly offers all to the Lord Jesus now, we don't, we don't suffer intentionally. We don't choose pain as if there is no other choice. No, but we, we choose servanthood and generosity and giving and serving and mission and evangelism and laying our life down. And when that decision requires cost and loss, we say, yes, Lord, I see it now. I see the cross today for me. when we think of a way we could serve, or give, or go, or send, but we are aware that that's going to cost me something that I love. It's going to cost me a friend. It's going to cost me a vacation. It's going to cost me a bigger house. It's going to cost me some me time. It's going to cost me that weekend hangout. It's going to cost me serving in that way, giving in that way, loving in that way. It's going to cost me. We go right back to this passage. And we listen to Jesus, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will remain alone. Spiritual life only comes through death. Spiritual life for others only comes through the death of God's people. Sometimes physical death, often the death to our personal preferences and desires and interests and comfort and, and, and good things. It's not as though in the Christian life we only have to give up bad things. Boy, that's a danger way we could think. Well, yes, I, I know. As a Christian, I give up my sin. No. Yes, at the very least, you should give up your sin, but the Christian life is more than just giving up sin. It's also giving up good things for the sake of Jesus. How dangerous if we think, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It just means giving up sin. Stop hurting people. Well, no, no, it means that, but it means more than that. It means taking up the cross of His mission and sowing our lives into the field so that the harvest that Jesus is intended to receive can take place through the sacrifice of His people as well. I, I often think that a major shift in maturity for a Christian happens when they realize that they're going to have to give up not just the evil things, but some of the good things that they love in order to love Jesus more. Of of course we're called to give up wickedness, but we're also called to give up good things. Listen, in the end, if you think about the story Jesus told, it, it it was a farm that the person had to go and check on that kept him out of the feast. The person didn't sell something evil for the pearl of great price. He sold all the good things that he had. The rich young ruler was told, look, not not stop your wickedness. It was give up what you have. These are good things that you have. Give them up and come follow me. Look, it's the good things that often chain us away from wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus. We must follow Jesus on the road of suffering to glory. We gladly sow the seed of our life and refuse to cling to the life we enjoy, to justify it because it is good and not wicked. We justify holding on to things because they are good and not wicked. They are allowable. They are not forbidden things. And so we hold on to them rather than sowing them so that the harvest can increase. This passage means that as we marvel at the death of Christ for us, we should grow in our willingness to lay down our lives for His harvest. As we see the glory of His death, we should be willing to take up our cross for the sake of His harvest. Sacrifice is the road of glory for every true follower of Jesus Christ. Sacrifice is the road of glory for every true follower of Jesus Christ. The passage ends by compelling us with the expectation of a reward. Look down there at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, and the definition definition of that serving is sacrifice, it is death to self for the sake of the harvest, it is following Jesus on his road toward his cross, And if anyone does that, if anyone serves me, what will happen? The Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. Now, sacrifice is hard. Giving up things that we love is hard. Giving up good things that we love. The good life is hard. It is hard to do. Do you want to do that? I don't want to do that. It's hard to give up good things that we love. We worked for those things. We've slaved for those things. And now we have them and we're enjoying them. And it's hard to give them up. And so Jesus says, listen, what's going to happen to you is going to be better than you can imagine. If you serve me by sowing your life for my harvest, guess what? The Father will honor you. The Father will honor you. The Father honors the self-sacrificing Christian. The Father honors the self-sacrificing Christian The Christian who sows the good things of his life in self-sacrificing ways for the, the expansion of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel and the good of his fellow brothers and sisters. What happens to that person? The Father honors him. Listen, there is a date set in heaven for every Christian who has sacrificed for every amount of land that they lost, houses that they lost, friends that they lost for the sake of the kingdom. There is a date set. God has set a calendar date where He will honor you. Listen, the the New Testament isn't about masochism. It's not just enjoy suffering for its own sake. And don't you dare expect God to say anything about it. Don't you know what you deserve is hell? Anything less than that, you should be grateful for. Now, that's that's an incomplete picture of what the New Testament says. The New Testament is unashamed about celebrating the honor that God intends to give to those who sacrifice in this life. God has not made suffering eternal or sacrifice eternal. He has made it temporary. The problem is we tend to think of this life as almost eternal and suffering as almost eternal interminable, and so we tend to shirk away from sacrifice. God sees it in the reverse. He sees an eternity of honor for a very brief season of sacrifice. Imagine a, a father who went to his children and said, okay, guys, here's, here's the situation. We're going to spend three hours on Saturday working really hard in the yard, and it's going to be hard work and painful, and you're going to have to give up playing, and you're going to have to give up clean hands, and you're going to have to give up a comfortable inside air-conditioned situation, and and you're probably going to have some bruises and thorns and scrapes. We've got to clear out the thorn bushes. It's going to be hard work. You know it's nasty, hard, painful work. But guys, guess what? For everybody that comes and sows into that difficult moment and gives themselves and gives their life, you know what's going to happen? I, I am going to take you on a 10-year vacation. A 10-year vacation where we will do every enjoyable thing you can possibly imagine. All expenses paid. We'll get to be together as a family. We'll get to explore. We'll get to enjoy and, and, and do all kinds of stuff that you can't wait to do. But, but these next three hours, you know what they're for? They're for work. You're, you're going to have to give up. You're going to have to come outside. And you're gonna to have to work joyfully, and you're gonna to have to serve passionately, and you're gonna to have to give up things, and they're not bad things. I know it's couches are nice, beds are nice, air conditioning's nice, those are all nice things, but I need you to come out and work. I need you to come and sew. But as soon as we're done, we're going on our decade-long vacation. Now, the reality is infinitely greater than that story. Because this life is a dot compared to the eternal reward God gives to his people. God isn't coming to us as a harsh master saying, listen, joy is found in pain. So give up the good things of your life and sow them into my kingdom. And when you get done with that, come back and ask me for more. No, he comes to you and says, look, you're only going to have these things for such a brief time, such a temporary time. It's just a matter of hours. You're going to blink, and it'll be over. But the reward comes from the eternal God himself. Are you really going to hold on to your little earthly seed when you have an orchard of reward to be celebrated by God himself? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, this is a radically different way of living life. But we must be those who are fixed on the well done. We are fixed on the well done. We, we make decisions, financial decisions, time decisions, interaction with other friends decisions, hospitality decisions. We make those in terms of eternity and not in terms of how they affect us in the immediate. Do you see the difference? We, we make that decision based on the 10-year vacation, not based on how it's going to feel for the next five minutes. We are those fixed on eternity. We are not interested in having our most comfortable life right now. We are interested in sowing in an eternal kingdom and looking forward to the well done in the future. This is the life of casting aside those things we would rather keep, of sowing what we would rather cherish, of laying down what we would rather preserve. We don't see loss as only loss, but as investment toward future gain. And I want to close this message by referencing three ways, three practical ways you can sow. You can take up your cross and sow. Number one, you can sow by sending and going, dear friends, into the mission. You can sow by Going yourselves or sending, dear friend, into the mission. This is this is literally. I mentioned this last week. This is a season of sowing as a church. We're sowing friends, and we can do that grudgingly, like a little kid who says, "I guess I'll rake leaves if I have to," or we can do that joyfully, painfully, but joyfully. We can say, "I, I, I gladly send and, and support and, and prayerfully support those who are going into the mission." I, I gladly take up their, their burden as they leave, and I, I ensure that, that, that their, their gap isn't felt as much in, in our church or in our community. Why? Because I, I want to sow and send into the mission. Now, this is not the last time as a church we're called to sow, dear friends, into the mission. We'll, we'll have other moments in the future, God willing. God willing because we want the reward and we want the harvest. We're not hoping to have as minimal sending as we possibly can in the future. We're not hoping and praying, oh, I, I desperately hope my dear friend never goes anywhere. I desperately hope my close friends never go on a church plan or in the mission field. Oh, Lord, let me just send people that I don't feel very much, and I'll clap as they go and keep all the close people that I love close to me. Let me, let me be the one that claps for other people's sacrifice. No, no, we don't want that. We must be more ambitious than that. We want to be those who sow into the mission because we are looking to the well-done, Now, there is a difference between resignation and sending with faith. We don't want these seeds to just be taken from us. We want to express to the Lord that we gladly sow them into the field so that they can reap a harvest. We sow by sending, we also sow by serving. We sow our time by serving those around us. This happens in our family, at home, this happens in our church. Listen, we all love using our time on ourselves. I don't care if you're eight years old or 80 years old. You love using your time on yourself, just like I do. You work, and then you worship yourself. <laughs> that, that's what we do. That's that's our natural disposition. We have to work because you know you have to eat. But then then you, then you get to focus on yourself. And God says, no, sow your time into the service of others. If you're a husband, sow your time into serving your wife. If you're a wife, sow your time into serving your husband. If you're children, sow your time into serving your siblings. How easy is it for a young person to say, look, this is mine. Don't take what is mine. I got it for my birthday. It's mine. The Christian young person says, look, this is God's, and I am glad to sow it to your happiness. Boy, how unusual would that be for mom to come in and say, we're arguing about who gets to give their toy to the other person. But that's what this passage would say, sow, sow your life, sow your time, Let me challenge you, if you're still living at home and you're a young person, when's the last time you willingly and secretly did a sibling's chore for them so that they didn't have to do it? Husbands, when's the last time you willingly did something that your wife doesn't expect you to do around the house? Wives, when's the last time you you sowed investing in a moment of encouraging your husband for his labors for your family? Listen, we, we sow by serving. Our first thought when we think about, I don't want to, I mean, somebody asked me if I could come set up on Sunday morning, but it's early and I'm tired. Our first thought should be, wait, sacrifice is what I'm called to do as a Christian. It's not something I try to minimize or budget. <laughs> it's something I'm called to. Listen, if you try to budget sacrifice, You're missing the point of your calling as a Christian. We sow by serving. A Christian should feel that his life is out of balance if he is not sowing his time in service to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, we sow by giving. We sow by giving. In the New Testament, money is one of the chief indicators of the true treasure of our heart. Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. This is where the phrase literally comes true. You're putting your money where your mouth is. We say to the Lord, take all I am, Lord, and all that I cling to. You are my Savior. I owe you everything to. I mentioned this last week, it's good to just review again. We, we sow by giving. We say, Lord, if this money that is yours can be useful to <laughs> proclaim your gospel in this community or around the world, I gladly sacrifice what I could have spent it on, on me in order to sow it towards your kingdom. Listen, I, I would encourage us as we, as we head into this, this Generations Project and just in your regular giving, as you give to other causes in this world for the kingdom of God, listen, don't, don't think, how little can I give without giving up the other good things in my life? Think, how can I afford not to sow into God's eternal kingdom? Brothers and sisters, look, money is a, is a revealer of our heart. It reveals whether our heart is more earthbound or heavenbound. So when Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it anyway, it is good to remember, you know, you are going to lose your money <laughs> when you die. You are, it's gone. You do not get to take it with you. Your bank account is unreachable from heaven. Your pin does not work there. Your house cannot be reached from those streets. Your vacations will seem pathetic in comparison <laughs> to the new Jerusalem. It's good to ask the question, are we loving our life as expressed by our money, or could it truly be said of us in comparison to our love for the kingdom of God? We are hating our life in this world. Look, Jesus Jesus was the most eternity minded human being who ever lived. He is not saying this because he wants us to not enjoy things. He's saying this because he has a joy set before us that is greater than we can imagine. He is not coming to us like that father with that little girl saying, Give me your seed. You think seeds are for enjoyment? You think I want you to have fun? No, he's coming and saying, If you trust me, I guarantee that the orchard that will be is worth giving up your seed right now. Trust me, trust me with your life, trust me with your time, trust me with your money, trust me with your dreams and your ambitions and your goals, trust me with your securities, trust me with your possessions, trust me with your joy, and I guarantee you, you sow that and the orchard harvest that is to come will be more than you can imagine. Husbands and wives, let me encourage you to get together and ask this question. Is our family defined by sowing? Is our family defined by sowing to the glory of Jesus and His kingdom? Is that the first and most important shaping value of our time, our schedule, our budget, our yearly plans, are we defined by sowing? Are we defined by longing for the well done? Kids, let me ask you that question. Is your life defined by serving and giving? Or is it defined by taking and demanding? Let me urge you. Let's follow the one who saved us on the road of sacrifice that leads to glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we did last week, I just want to pause for a moment, and I want to ask, Lord, that You would bring conviction wherever there has been a a clinging to our life in this world. I pray Lord that we would offer it freely to you. Would bring to mind right now ways that we can sow abundantly into your kingdom. And Lord, most importantly, thank you for sowing your life to save us from our sin. Thank you for going into the ground. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for the the harvest that included us. Lord, and wherever we have been selfish or self-centered or clinging to this life, Lord, we come now, we lay it at your feet, and we say afresh, Lord, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Lord, we lay it at your feet. We offer it to you freely. We gladly take whatever sacrifices you have set before us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.